Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. It's good to be with you. Um, we, are, we do have children's church this morning. We uh, dismiss our children for children's church as we were uh, trying to figure things out uh, yesterday. We uh, knew we were going to cancel Sunday school and we were going to uh, cancel our, our uh, uh, partnership ministry fair after church. We just didn't want to require people to come here when we didn't know what the weather would be like. Um, and uh, Children's Church was sort of in the balance, but we were able to pull it off and uh, we're, we're thankful for those volunteers that are uh, attending to our kids today. Uh, just uh, so you know, the general principle is we don't cancel our worship service very often. I think it's happened once in our 15 years as a church. What we generally do, though, is we say to people, we know you have different road conditions in various places in the city, so when you step out of your door, make a wise decision. Um, And uh, we uh, found that many of you were able to come today. I'm glad we didn't cancel. Um, This uh, so-called blizzard of 2019 has so far not been very memorable, Um, and we're thankful for that. So uh, we are moving along in the book of James, a letter written from James, one of the important leaders of the early church, to a church in exile, people who are dispersed throughout the Roman world. He wrote to them about what it meant to have true faith in hard times. One of the ways James spoke about this is the need for wisdom. He spoke to a church that had people who were suffering in various ways, and he said they needed wisdom, uh, they needed God to grant them wisdom. And throughout the letter, he's pointed out several ways in which wisdom can take shape in our lives. Uh, In verses 26 and 27 of the first chapter, James lays out three types of ways wisdom works itself out. He listed the way we speak, uh, the way in which we serve those around us in need, and and the importance of not being shaped by the patterns of the world. Now these three categories, uh, one might see, shape much of what happens in the book. We spent much of the time leading up to Christmas talking about this call to be faithful to steward and care for the resources God's given us to care for people in need around us. And last week we moved into his second topic, a discussion of uh, guarding your tongue. It's something James will uh, return to. But in this passage, this week, we see he's, he's introducing his third topic, and though the, the, the topic of worldliness doesn't come by that title yet, it will next week, we see the concepts are here as well. James speaks about wisdom that is from above, and he contrasts it with wisdom from the earth, a way of human thinking that's not centered on the fear of God or the reverence of God, but rather of a system that's set up on human principles and human patterns. We'll read this uh, together, James three thirteen to 18. We'll affirm it as God's word and then talk about it together. James 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as James tells us about wisdom that comes from above, we want to pause to remember what wisdom is. Uh, There's uh, a theme of wisdom that runs throughout the Bible. Often wisdom is uh, contrasted with foolishness. Sometimes that's a, a common setup. And wisdom in the Bible is not just knowing information, but rightly relating that information to the world. It's practical in nature. It it shows that we know how the world works and we can uh, engage with it in the ways that God has intended. Sometimes wisdom can be very obvious or foolishness can be very obvious. and Sometimes it's harder to spot. Uh, think of two sort of illustrations to begin with. One comes from a a children's author and poet named Shel Silverstein. One of his favorite poems for me that he wrote is a poem called Smart. And as you'll see, the title is ironic. Silverstein's poem goes like this. My dad gave me a dollar bill because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters, because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. And just then, along came Blind Bates, and just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes, and four is more than three. And then I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down at the seed feed store and that fool gave me five pennies for them and five is more than four. And then I showed my dad and he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. (laughs) the, the, The twist on the poem is fairly obvious, right? He's not being smart at all. In fact, He's missed the the introductory lesson of financial policy, which is figure out which type of unit of currency you're working with before you trade it. And sometimes foolishness can be obvious. An old English proverb says, a fool and his money are soon parted. Many many themes in the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs and, and points in the teaching of Jesus, will contrast wisdom and foolishness. And sometimes they make a point by showing how obviously foolish someone is. Shel Silverstein's character, who just is obviously missing the point of his financial interactions. But other types of wisdom and foolishness can be less easy to spot. We think perhaps of the times in which someone learns to be very, very good with their money, and yet can be missing the point altogether. This past Christmas, we rewatched one of my favorite Christmas stories, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, the central character of Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge is someone who's learned to be, in one sense, very wise with money. Unlike Shel Silverstein's character, he knows all about financial currencies and units. He is frugal and thrifty to a fault. He invests and he, he makes, uh, one might say, fairly wise business deals. And yet, for those of you familiar with the story, knows that beyond this very narrow sense of financial investment, Ebenezer Scrooge is missing the greater story. He has missed his true business, as he's told by uh, the ghost of his former businessman, the true business of caring for those around him. 
And so as the story unfolds, you see Scrooge as someone who's been wise, perhaps, in a very narrow range, but foolish in the broader sense. And I, I think that's really, it's along those lines that James wants to speak to us here today. One might wonder that why it is that when James speaks of wisdom, he doesn't contrast it with foolishness. It's a common biblical pattern, but the language of foolishness doesn't come in the passage. In fact, what we have is rather a somewhat different approach. James says that the wisdom, there's a wisdom in verse 15, a wisdom that comes from above, but also another type of wisdom, something that has the appearance of wisdom. It's a wisdom that's not from above, it's not true, but it's false, it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So the way in which James approaches wisdom here is to say there are two things you might encounter in your life that give a presentation as wisdom. And I think the thing that he wants us to know is that sometimes spotting the difference between the two can be hard. And yet they have very different sources, very different characteristics, and very different results. Let's look together at those two things, these, these two competing forms of wisdom that, that, that James has for us. And again, I think we start with this warning. They won't always be obvious. And sometimes the wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual can even be deceptive and enticing. We'll look at three things as we move through the passage today. We'll see the sources of these two different types of wisdom their different characteristics, and their different results. And then we'll close simply by letting the question of James resonate in our own hearts. Who is wise? What does wisdom look like for us, especially viewed in light of the cross? So first of all, as we look at this passage, the different sources of wisdom, I think James chooses the title of true wisdom and speaks of it as wisdom from above is because very clearly and plainly God is thought of as being from above. The Bible often speaks of God being in heaven and uses sort of uh, human understanding of spatial realities to show that God is in a different place from us. The idea is not that you get in a rocket ship and go up in the air to find God, but that God ruling and reigning from heaven is transcendent over us. So James, first of all, tells of us a, 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 about a true wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above. The Bible tells us throughout that true wisdom is based on receiving God's authority in our lives. As Naaman mentioned in, in his introduction to the worship service, many places in the Bible teach us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, proper reverence for the greatness of God is the first step in being truly wise. By contrast, James speaks of a wisdom that's from below, that's earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. In later chapters, we'll see here more about the James and his regard for demonic powers. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail today, but uh, suffice to say, the Bible regards demons as spiritual beings opposed to God. And so James has a form of wisdom presented to us that is from above, that is by its very nature, responsive to God, and also a form of wisdom that is opposed to God, that is self-centered. As we discussed in the end of the sermon last week, the central concern here at this part in the book of James is a question of what rules in our hearts. What is the central concern that you treasure and value? 
What's the most important thing that you would treasure at the core of your being? When you answer that question, you will know what sort of wisdom will flow from it. The wisdom from below is a wisdom that, according to James, is characterized by, verse 14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. If the core of your being is consumed with self-interest, then your wisdom will flow from it. We go back to our illustration of Ebenezer Scrooge, a man who made, in some ways, wise financial decisions, but it was flowed from a heart of self-love and self-promotion, and it was destructive to people around him. There was perhaps an earthly wisdom in play, but James wants us to know that that sort of approach is not a wisdom that comes from God. By contrast, in verse 13, the uh, the true wisdom that James is concerned about, a truly wise person has good conduct and is done in the meekness of wisdom. We've seen this word meek before in the letter of James. It means deferential and responsive. We're reminded of phrases that in the English language that talked about a meek horse winning the race because it was so responsive to its rider. Or the Old Testament reference to Moses, the great prophet of Israel, who was a meek man, submissive to God, used effectively, even as he confronted the powers of his day. In particular, a heart posture of meekness or responsiveness to God is the source of true wisdom, James tells us. Now, on this point, the ancient world would have had a a real uh, point of contention, And many of the other ancient writers that would have been uh, popular in the day in which James was writing would have had their own definitions of wisdom. You could go to various street corners and hear the the sidewalk philosophers or into the the classrooms of the day to hear what people thought about wisdom. But some of the great thinkers of the day didn't list meekness as a virtue. Instead, they thought of it as weakness, as the sign that someone was not strong enough to engage with the world with independence. James paints a different picture. A meek posture towards God is the beginning of wisdom, and from it flows a very different way of engaging with the world around us. The second thing we see in the passage is not just the source of wisdom, but the characteristics of wisdom. James has quite a list of them, and he emphasizes the wisdom from above, this way of engaging the world. It flows from a heart posture of treasuring God and his kingdom, but it moves outward differently. Verse 17, James says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Think about the things on that list, pure, or we might say holy, devoted to God, aligned to his character, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. We heard a reading early in the service from Philippians, Philippians 4, in which Paul calls us to be people who live in awareness of God's presence and are people that are reasonable. All of these qualities are much needed today. But they they flow from a reality that we know God is present. If God is not present, then being peaceable, gentle, and open to reason is simply making ourselves vulnerable to manipulation. If the world is a place in which our own strength is the only factor that matters, 
then being impartial, having mercy, or being sincere are not good qualities, but they're actually weaknesses. They might put you behind the game. Imagine a, a, a television show like Survivor where the contests grapple with each other for supremacy and victory on a small island somewhere. Would these characteristics of wisdom from above be characteristics that would help someone to win in that setting? Or think about your own life and your own setting. You probably don't live in the world of Survivor, but maybe sometimes it feels that way. Maybe you live in a in work in a competitive setting where everyone's elbowing each other and stepping on each other to get up. Imagine your next resume or perhaps a recommendation for a job. If it included these words, would it help you? If someone gave you a reference by saying, you know, she's really gentle and peaceable and merciful, would that give you a benefit? Or, perhaps, do we find that often in the settings in which we work and operate, the earthly wisdom that James speaks of is actually more treasured. What are the characteristics of this earthly wisdom? Or, use the language that James will use later, the worldly wisdom. Verse 14, James tells us that it's selfish. Selfish ambition. It's characterized by boasting. It's not afraid to be false to the truth whenever there's an advantage to be gained. And it's associated in verse 16 with practices that are vile. Now, sometimes these things might be rejected. Sometimes they might be accepted. But just imagine for a moment that you were crafting your own resume or perhaps you're thinking about the kind of reference you want as you're looking for another position. You can pretty easily imagine how some sort of a, a framing of the, of the phrase ambition might actually be viewed as a good thing. And we don't really like people that boast. And yet if we're honest, we recognize that many of the systems and the structures around us encourage it. Sometimes there's that weird moment when you're interviewing for a job where you find, you know, I've really got to talk about all the things I do well. And there's a sense in which that's appropriate, but how easily that can begin to shift to our boasting How do your social engagements and interactions encourage a type of boasting? Maybe one that's uh, veiled by an appropriate humility. Many people talk about the ways in which even using online social media like Instagram can begin to promote their jealousy. Isn't it true that we cultivate our online image in a way that always makes us look the best? These are the factors and the things that shape us. And this is what James calls earthly wisdom. And I think the point he would want us to make, the one he'll continue to make throughout the letter, is that if we dismiss it too quickly without recognizing the potential allure, the hook, the attraction, we don't perhaps realize the influences that are shaping us. I think if you examine your own lives, you'd recognize many ways in which some of these things that are called earthly wisdom are actually valued highly. Selfish ambition might get you ahead in a lot of settings. Gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, those things might not be valued and they might actually give you a, 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 a create barriers in some of your settings. What are the results of this? 
James wants us to take a, a wider view. He shows us not only the source, not only the characteristics, but also the results of the different wise or not-so-wise approaches we take to the world. He warns us that though there may be personal benefit or immediate results, the wisdom that is from below is not peaceable. In fact, verse 16, it brings disorder. We know that as well. In some ways, that's Charles Dickens' lesson for Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer was getting ahead. He was uh, building for himself a great and vast fortune, but at a terrible cost. At a cost to the people around him, at a cost to his own soul. Selfish ambition may give us short-term consequences, but it leads to harm on a broader scale. Selfish ambition leads to disorder. Pittsburgh sports fans are painfully aware, aware of the way in which uh, last year our, our professional football team was characterized by both selfish ambition and terrible disorder. In many ways, that's sort of the underlying uh, challenge of any sort of team. A sports team is dependent upon individual players uh, subverting their own ambition and their own recognition for the good of the team. But we see the same is true in music, often in business. Harmonious teams are full of people willing to say, it's not going to be me first. We have the peace that comes from people who are willing to look to the needs and the interests of others. That's the contrast that James makes. As we look in verse 18, he shows us the results, the, the broader scale results of living in the wisdom that comes from above a person who is submitted to God, who is meek before him, whose life is characterized by all of the things listed in 17, verse 17, peaceableness. They are people who make peace around them. Verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The result of wise sowing and conduct that flows from a heart sub submitted to God Bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the result of that is that we are people who make peace. Now, obviously, it doesn't happen all the time in all places. There are circumstances beyond our control, and sometimes faithfulness to God can create tension in a particular situation. But James says, as a general rule, to the degree to which we live in the wisdom from above in which we uh, are seeking to be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The result of that is a harvest of righteousness. We are people sowing in peace and making peace. These are the general principles of wisdom and play. And I think it's a challenge for us to consider James begins with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? I think it's a question that promotes self-awareness and self-reflection. Are these things true of us? To the best that we can see are the things that we treasure in our heart, the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, or does selfish ambition and jealousy rule? Are we looking out for number one, first and foremost? Now that in itself can be a hard question. Our own heart motives are often unclear, and I think that's why James is so helpful. He puts his emphasis not on the inward reflection, but observing what is seeable, 
what is knowable, what are our practices Do those around us see us as people that are open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits? I think we ask those questions because they probe, uh, cause us to probe and to look inward and to say, what do I value and treasure most? And most practically, we can ask the question, is God working through me to bring peace or disorder? And again, our circumstances can vary, and there's often things far beyond our control. Sometimes faithfulness will bring, will stir things up a little bit. But as a rule, as a principle, as a general guideline, God calls us to be people who make peace. Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers. He urges us to be people who make things better around us. Friends, these are challenging questions to ask. There are questions we ask often in community. The point of these questions is to drive us back to our heart, to ask us what we treasure, and to cause us to re-examine our core motives, returning to God in mercy to find grace to help in time of need. What I'd like to do is I'd like to close with another story, another profile, another character for us to consider. A picture of wisdom that at first looked foolish to the world, but served to show the wisdom of God on a level that no one expected. We thought of the obvious foolishness of Shel Silverstein's character and the uh, somewhat obvious but maybe deceptive foolishness of someone like Ebenezer Scrooge who invests their life in profit at the cost of others. The Bible gives us another picture of wisdom, a supreme picture of wisdom, but a wisdom that was not immediately recognized by those around. Jesus of Nazareth was a person who, from outward appearances, was an aspiring leader in first century Palestine. He showed prophetic gifts and miraculous powers. He attracted crowds and was rising in popularity. And then, at the height of his powers, his popularity, he gave it all away. Seemingly without a fight, He was opposed by his own people, betrayed by one of his followers, and his closest friends abandoned him in his hour of need. He was condemned to death by the Roman powers. He was ridiculed, tortured, and crucified. He died naked and alone alongside the highway by the city. What did people say as they walked by? The Gospels tell us they mocked him. They didn't use the word fool as far as I'm uh, aware, but I think it, it, was the, it was the essence of what they said to him. Oh, you thought you were so great. You saved others. Can't you save yourself? They saw in Jesus alone, abandoned, betrayed. They saw him the big loser. The man too foolish to understand the political currents of his time too foolish to pick friends and followers that would be trustworthy in his hour of need. Too foolish to save himself. The Apostle Paul thought this way in his early life. He saw in Jesus only a wannabe teacher, a loser, one who lost it all. 
But as he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, his perception of the world was changed. His understanding of true wisdom was altered, and he grasped a deep, deeper truth. Reflecting on this to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul says, The word of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The earthly wisdom from below says that Jesus gave it away for people who didn't appreciate him. His gentleness and his meekness were signs of weakness. He couldn't read the political landscape, let alone his own followers, but the New Testament reveals that the death of Jesus was not foolishness, but the height of wisdom. Jesus was wisdom embodied, submitted totally to God, meek and humble before his purposes. He was bold to confront the powers of his day, but willing to sacrifice everything, even his life, for the glory of God and the good of his people. He didn't cling to his own life, but he gave it away as a willing sacrifice in place of a debt that was owed by people like us. So we see death didn't have the final word. The cross was not the end. On the other side of death was resurrection. The grave could not hold him. There was a wisdom that was deeper and stronger than anything the world had known or would know without reference to God. The Apostle Paul continues his reflection this way. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is the cross, to save those who believe. Paul scanned the world around them and he said the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is what... James puts before us as well, way of life shaped by the cross, wisdom defined by the cross, self-giving, self-loving, flowing from faith in God that moves towards others and finds in it the power of the resurrection. But friends, don't be fooled. There will be times where this wisdom is costly. It will not always be recognized and often may even be ridiculed. To live a life shaped by both the giving of the cross and the power of the cross will also cause us to be thought at times as being foolish. Will you pursue true wisdom in Jesus? Let's close in prayer.